Section three of the Cartel's Jungle by Irving E. Cox, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seven Max Hunter rode the autojet to the casino. As the machine rose past the city levels, he found himself thinking less about Anne and a good deal more about Dawn. A recreational companion woman who was simultaneously a psychiatrist. Where did she really fit in the subtle battle between the Titan cartels? Which of them was her ally? Or did Don represent another element as yet unidentified? Knowing Ann Samer had taught Hunter a wholesome respect for the thinking of a first in psychiatry, they operated with a deviousness that made cartel treacheries seem like child's play. He knew that Dawn had manipulated their conversation in the terminal to her own ends. Behind that deftly phrased patter of words, what else had she tried to tell him? And what had she tried to find out? Top level, she had said. That's logical. Why logical? Logical to whom? Did she know where he was going and why? The autojet thudded on the casino flat. A female attendant, robed in a skin-colored sheath bright with amber jewels, held open the cab door for him. Hunter entered the nearest casino. At the door he showed his saving record in the Solar First National Fund, and a casino teller issued him a ten-thousand-credit limit, the smallest denomination available. The resorts weren't wasting effort on pikers. Although the casinos everywhere in the system were popular with spacemen, Hunter had never been to the top level before, because Anne had seen to it that his surplus credits went into their savings. It was Hunter's opinion that he hadn't missed much. The Los Angeles resorts duplicated, on an elaborate scale, the most unsavory establishments of the frontier. Anything which by any stretch of a perverted imagination could be defined as entertainment was available, at a price. It was early, and the crowd was still small. It consisted of spacemen on the usual furlough binge, a handful of suburbanites who had hoarded a half-year's savings for this one-night fling in the big resorts, and a dozen bright-faced executives from the lower levels of the cartel hierarchy. The big brass would turn up later on at a more fashionable hour. At all costs, Hunter had to keep himself inconspicuous, his uniform was not entirely out of place, although Consolidated did issue its commanders a formal outfit, more gold braid and jeweled insignia, and a jacket cut to emphasize the broad shoulders. Hunter stopped at the snack bar and wolfed a plate of cold cuts, the first food he had eaten since morning. Then he moved indirectly across the pillared gambling pavilion, pausing at two tables to place bets. His objective was to find a vantage point in the upper floor of the casino where he could observe the geographic layout of the top level. He slipped quickly into the dark well of an emergency stairway, feeling reasonably sure that no one had seen him leave the game room. More than half an hour had passed since he had fled Mrs. Ames's rooming house, and he was convinced that very shortly, if they had not done so already, the police would put out a general alarm. As a matter of course, there would be inquiries at the top level, but at first they would be made by police mercenaries. No one in the casino had any reason to identify Hunter as the fugitive. Later on, of course, when the police used electronic trackers, 
he wouldn't stand a chance. But before that happened, he intended to make a deal with Werner von Rausch. At the top of the stairs, he found a tower window which afforded a crow's nest view of the top level. The twelve casinos, bright with lights, occupied more than half the area. Beyond the resort parkland was the small white government building, dignified by its simplicity among so much ostentation. Beside it was the transparent semisphere housing the top landing of the center city lifts. A third structure, a grotesque mechanical monster trapped in the heart of a spider web of converging wires, was the power distribution center for the top level. In back of the government building, a high metal-faced fence knifed across the level. That fence guarded the forbidden home ground of the Titans. Hunter could see the silhouette of the cartel castles rising against the sky, two gigantic masses of stone. The one on the west was Farron's, the eastern one von Rausch's. That much and no more was common knowledge. Were the two families who had fought for so long to control the empire beyond the stars, on speaking terms here, did they observe the social amenities in the same spirit that their companies enforced the sham peace on earth? In their lonely lofty isolation, what amusements did they enjoy? What contributed to the enrichment of the lives of those fragile beings who possessed the wealth of the galaxy? Hunter was sure no armed guards patrolled the forbidden paradise. There was no need for them, for scanners formed a protective grid over the area. An autojet attempting a landing from any direction would break a beam and instantly become the target for the auto blasters erected at intervals along the fence. A man attempting to scale the wall would meet the same lethal charge. Hunter saw one small gate with an identification screen mounted in front of it. Obviously, the gate would open to the handprint of a von Rausch or a Farron, but a stranger would find himself standing in the line of fire of two blasters conspicuous over the gate. The scanners, the blasters, the identification screen, all the complex electronic watchdogs— depended solely upon power. Countless other people, Hunter knew, had realized that. Only mechanically produced power made the area invulnerable. Anyone could break through the fence. It hadn't been done before, perhaps, because no other man had ever had Hunter's motivation. None had been a fugitive on the run. Hunter made his way out of the casino and crossed the park in the direction of the government building, Sheltered by the trees from the blaze of light, he was able to see the stars bright in the velvet sky. The endless universe. Somewhere he could find a haven for himself and Anne, a pinprick of light in the high-arching firmament which the cartels had overlooked. Dawn had said that running away was madness. But what alternative did he have? To stay and attempt to make the cartel rat race over? sweetly and rationally so that no one would be hurt hunter laughed bitterly von rausch had the exerciser and he could keep it it would be part of the bargain the captain thought he could make to save anne with that weapon von rausch would sooner or later tear his own world to shreds no man in his right mind would want to stay around to pick up the pieces if any he drew his blaster and took careful aim at the power distribution center the machine exploded, 
Burning wires sang in the air. In the casinos, the lights winked out, and the entertainment machines went dark. Hunter heard the shrill screaming of the trapped crowd. He knew that it would bring the police running, but he also knew they would have arrived shortly in any case. The important thing was that the electronic watchdogs on the wall were now lifeless. Hunter blasted open the gate and took the path that led east. The Von Rausch Castle, and the word was scarcely a metaphor, was something lifted bodily out of a tri-de-historical romance, complete with porticos, battlements, stone-walled towers, and an imitation moat where mechanical swans floated on the dark water. He crossed the moat on a rustic footbridge of plastic, cleverly fabricated to seem like crudely hewn wood. Through a high, narrow window, he saw a pale flicker of light. The pane was thick with grime. Hunter could distinguish nothing in the room except a thin, elderly woman who seemed to be moving around a table where six candles burned in a silver candelabrum. He kicked open the window. The woman looked at him, neither frightened nor alarmed. She was wearing an odd black dress, long-sleeved, high-necked, with a hemline that touched the floor. Her face was pale and wrinkled, unrelieved by any sort of cosmetic. She held out her fragile hands. "'You did come, Carl. I knew you wouldn't disappoint Auntie,' Hunter cried through clenched teeth. "'I want Werner von Rausch. Where is he?' "'Goodness, dear. How should I know? Werner never comes to my parties.' Hunter noticed the table, then set for eight, its gleaming silver and gold-rimmed china glowing in the soft candlelight. "'Your cousin Charlotte's already here, Carl,' the woman gestured gracefully toward the table. "'And little Helmick. They know how important it is to come on time.' He felt horror and unconscious pity as he realized the truth. Yet he tried once more to get from her the information he wanted. "'Oh, bother with Werner, she answered, pouting. If you must know, I didn't even invite him. He's such a bore among young people. She saw the blaster in Hunter's hand and pushed it aside gently with a grimace of disapproval. I don't like you to have these toys, Carl. Next thing you'll be wanting to join the army. Hunter flung himself out of that room into a dark and musty hall. Behind him he heard the woman still talking, as if he had never left her. He blundered from one bleak room to another, rooms that were like tombs smelling of dust and decay. On the second floor he came upon a small, balding man, who sat reading at a desk in a room crammed with tottering stacks of old books. The light came from an antiquated electric lamp. Obviously the house had its own generating plant, independent of the power center Hunter had destroyed. Hunter jerked up his blaster again. Werner von Rausch! "'One moment,' the man said. Ignoring Hunter, the man quietly finished what he was reading, slipped a leather place-mark into the book, and put it on top of a stack beside the desk. The pile promptly collapsed in a cloud of dust at Hunter's feet. Max saw some of the title pages. The books were extraordinarily old, some of them with a printing date a thousand years in the past.' The man pinched a pair of eyeglasses on his nose and studied Hunter carefully. "'You're from the police, I presume?' he asked. 
If you are Werner von Rausch, I'm Heinrich. I sent in the report. Though I must say you couldn't have come at a more inconvenient time. I'm collating the spells tonight. I have them all right here at my fingertips. And when I'm finished, he seized the captain's jacket and his voice was suddenly shrill. I will have the power to sum up any demon from hell. Think what that means. I'll be greater than Faust. I'll have more power than... Where can I find Werner von Rausch? Yes, Werner, poor boy. Heinrich was calm again. You'll have to do your duty, officer. He's been annoying me all afternoon. So much noise. A man can't think. He's in his shop at the end of the hall. But don't be too severe with him. Perhaps this time just a warning will make him see reason. Hunter went back to the corridor, feeling again the shadow of horror at this sick distortion of reality. In the distance beyond the metal fence he heard the scream of sirens and realized he had at best another three minutes before the police would be there. Three minutes to make a deal with Werner and save Anne. Hunter pushed back the nightmare that welled up from the depths of his mind. It wasn't true. It couldn't be true. If it were, nothing in the jungle made sense. Chapter 8 As he felt his way along the hall, he passed the cage of a lift, a private transit between the house and the cartel offices on the city levels below. He noted it subconsciously as a possible means of escape. But he was through running. He could make a deal with von Rausch. After that, the police wouldn't matter. At the end of the corridor, he came upon a paneled door. Behind it, he could hear the hum of a motor and knew that he had found Werner's shop and the source of the noise that had disturbed Heinrich's research. Hunter flung open the door. The light was bright and gay. On the floor, a fat old man sat hunched over the remote control console of a toy monorail system. Toy space liners and fighting ships buzzed in the air. Werner von Rausch? Hunter whispered. You've come to play with me, the fat old man flashed the cherubic smile of a child. And you brought me a blaster. Oh, let me see it, let me see it. He clapped his hands eagerly. Hunter turned and fled. The scream of the siren still seemed no closer, but without assessing his chances, Hunter sprang into the private lift. It dropped downward toward its unknown destination. What that was, Hunter didn't care. Anything to escape from so hideous a madhouse. The Von Rausch clan, an old lady who lived with ghosts, a scholar of demonology, a patriarch lost in an eternal childhood, all of them running away into their own private fantasies. But this was the family which ruled a cartel and directed the conquest of half the galaxy. These were the most powerful human beings who had ever lived, and they were escaping into insanity. Escaping what? Responsibility? The jungle of the cartels? Two alternatives, Don had said. Pull down the world, or run away from it. The von Rauches had made this mess, and then fled in horror from their own brutal and destructive creation. 
The lift cage jerked to a stop. The door opened on a warmly lighted executive office, where a white-haired man sat at a desk which had been cut from a single slab of Venusian crystal. A much enlarged projection of the United Researcher's emblem glowed from the wall. Hunter raised his weapon. The old man gestured imperiously. "'Don't be a fool, Captain. I wouldn't be here unless I had adequate protection. There are blasters in the wall, which I can trigger with a single spoken word. "'You want to finish the job your men bungled this afternoon? Not our men, Captain. We got in on this deal a little late.' We knew nothing about this psychiatric patent until the strike started today. But Ann Samer, unfortunately, we do not have her. It's consolidated. We sent our men out to bring you in, Captain. We wanted your help. When you got away, it didn't occur to me that you would go to the top level. Not until we heard the report of the destruction of the power distributor. It was easy enough to anticipate your moves after that. If you hadn't used the private von Rausch lift, you would have gone out again through the gate where my men were waiting. Naturally, we couldn't send them inside. You can understand why, of course. Hunter heard only vaguely what the man was saying, for abruptly the pattern fell into place. Neither Consolidated nor United had Anne or the Exerciser. Each cartel suspected the other, because they hadn't yet adjusted to the idea that a third cartel existed, Eric Young's union. Anne's Micropic had told the literal truth. She had taken her commission job with the biggest private clinic, operated by the UFW. It was a dead giveaway when Young struck both cartels simultaneously, if Hunter had read the data correctly. Hunter moved toward the crystal desk. "'I know where Anne is, sir,' he said. "'I can—' "'You can stay where you are,' the old man interrupted. "'One hour ago, my friend, I was ready to offer you a deal. "'Since then you've seen—' "'He raised his eyes toward the ceiling. "'You've seen what's up there. "'Only four of us know that secret. "'We don't relish sharing it with a fifth. "'Unless you destroy Anne's patent, you're finished anyway.' "'Destroy, Captain!' "'The senile voice turned silky.' No, we want that machine intact. If you'll guarantee Anne's safety and mine, you have an exaggerated idea of your own importance. You would have been useful to us, particularly since you have been a consolidated employee. But this thing you blundered into up there destroys your value entirely, and makes you potentially as dangerous as the Samer patent. That's my opinion. The other three who share the von Rausch secret have an equal vote in deciding the issue. They may reverse my decision. I've asked them to come here, and I'm waiting for them now. The old man was so intent upon making a logical explanation of the death sentence he pronounced, without putting it into words, that he didn't notice Hunter edging closer to the desk. Captain Hunter saw no chance for a reprieve when the other three arrived. Why wait? Having fought on the frontier, Hunter was aware of a property of the Venusian crystal which possibly the old man did not know. It was impervious to blaster fire. Hunter acted with the split-second timing of an experienced spaceman. 
He swung his body in a flying tackle against the old man's chair, and in the same swift motion pushed himself into the leg cubicle carved in the crystal. As the chair toppled, and before he realized his own danger, the old man cried the code word that triggered the wall blasters. He was instantly caught in the deadly crossfire. As the weapon slid back into the wall slots, Hunter leaped for the door and passed quickly through it. The outer hall was empty. He sprinted for the walkway, the echoes of the blast still ringing in his ears. The destination marker glowed above a nearby metro entry. It told him he was on the 28th level of Center City. On a large public Tri-D screen, Hunter saw a picture of the strike mob in the industrial area. That was all the data he needed. If the mob was still in the streets, Eric Young was still manipulating the transmitter. Hunter took the unchartered autojet and dialed as his destination the UFW clinic. It was the largest structure in the industrial area, made from luminous pink Martian stone, which had been imported at great cost, and with a blaze of publicity. Completed only three years before, the UFW clinic had been given a continuous flood of publicity. Numerous Tri-D public service programs had explored its wards, its laboratories, and its service centers. And even in a distant spaceship, Hunter had not remained in ignorance of the build-up. The knowledge served to his advantage now, for he knew just where Young's personal penthouse was located and exactly how to reach it. There were no armed guards or automatic probes in the clinic. Such an outward display of force wouldn't have jibed with Young's public personality. He was the much-loved official head of a union whose membership totaled millions. Any protective device would have distorted the illusion and destroyed the legend completely. Young's penthouse, thirty floors above street level, was the modest garden cottage which had been so widely publicized and that, too, was a part of his illusion. When Hunter saw the tiny house, he was able to appreciate Young's showmanship, his insight into the mental processes of the credulous. Hunter moved toward the door. Light glowed inside the cottage, but through the broad front window he could see no one. He felt a momentary doubt. Had he guessed wrong? Was Young holding Anne somewhere else? But Hunter was sure Young had not taken that precaution. It would have involved risks he would not have to contend with at the clinic, unless he had been reasonably certain he would be found out. And Young had expected to prevent that by keeping consolidated and united at each other's throats. Hunter kicked open the door. The three small rooms in the cottage were empty, until a man wearing a Union smock emerged from the narrow galley. He hadn't been there a moment before when Hunter examined the cubicle, and there was no rear entry to the cottage. "'Mr. Young isn't here, sir,' the man said, gliding swiftly toward him. "'If you wish to leave a message—' Hunter saw the tell-tale grid wire in the stranger's forehead. He ducked aside instinctively as the knife gleamed in the man's hand. With an odd sighing sound, the blade arched through the air, smashing the picture window. Hunter's fist shot out, and the man dropped unconscious. Hunter went into the galley and found what he had missed before— the false bank of food slots which masked a narrow stairway. He ran quickly down the steps and found the opulent living quarters Eric Young had concealed on the clinic floor beneath the innocent garden cottage. Here, in gaudy splendor, in the tasteless clutter of objects assembled from every quarter of the cartel empire, 
was the true index of the infinite ambition of the UFW boss. A dozen men and women lurched at Hunter from an open hall. They wore white hospital robes, and their foreheads were still bandaged. Obviously, there were patients with recently grafted slave grids. Obedient to the transmission, they fought with a desperate, savage fury, and a clumsy lack of coordination which caricatured normal human behavior. Hunter repulsed their attack without difficulty, yet he felt an inner disgust and loathing as if he were using his strength to defeat helpless children. In two minutes it was over. One of the men was dead, his head bandaged, torn loose, and the grid ripped out of his skull. Three more lay sprawled out on the floor, bleeding badly from freshly opened incisions. Hunter drew his blaster and entered the thickly carpeted hall, glowing with the soft pink light of the luminous Martian stone. He cried Anne's name. His voice fell hollowly in the silence, but there was no response. He moved to the end of the hall and pushed open a narrow door. He saw the white-tiled laboratory, Anne's transmitter standing on a long table with new platinum grids piled by the dozen beside it, and the barrack rows of hospital beds. From the angle of the room which was hidden by the half-open door, Anne Samer ran toward him with outstretched hands, crying his name. He took a step toward her, and something struck the back of his head. Chapter 9 Hunter's mind rocked. He felt himself falling down the long spiral into unconsciousness. The blaster slipped from his hand and his knee buckled. But he clawed blindly with animal instinct at the hands closing on his throat. His head cleared. He saw Eric Young's dark face close to his. Hunter swung his fist into Young's stomach, and the hand slid away from his throat. Captain Hunter sprang to his feet, crouching low to meet Young's next attack. Young's swing went wild. Hunter's fist struck at the flabby jaw. Eric Young backed away, reeling under the hammer blows, until he came up against the laboratory table. Suddenly, he slashed at Hunter with a scalpel. The blade nicked Max's shoulder and cut across his jacket. The cloth parted, sliding down his arms and pinning his hands together. In the split second it took Hunter to free himself from the torn jacket, Young swung the scalpel again. Hunter dodged, miscalculating his aim. Eric Young tripped over Hunter's outstretched leg and fell, screaming upon the point of his own weapon. Hunter stood for an instant with his legs spread wide, looking down at Young. Then he dropped to his knees and rolled the grievously wounded man over on his back. The hand grasping the scalpel slowly pulled the blade from the abdominal wound. Blood pulsed down upon the white tile. Young was still barely alive. Hunter walked toward the transmitter where Anne stood, saying nothing, her eyes wide and staring. A tremendous conflict was raging within him. Running away was no solution, but what if he could destroy the system itself, break the mold and start anew? He had the instrument that would do it, the hundreds of obedient slaves Young had already turned loose on the streets. With Anne's transmitter, he could transform the disciplined strike of human automatons into a civic disaster, terror and violence uprooting the foundations of the city. But a moment's madness could not overthrow the enduring rationality of Hunter's adjustment index. 
To loose that horror was to set himself in judgment upon the dreams and hopes, the perversion and the sublimity of his own fellow men. To play at God, a delusion no different from Eric Young's. Savagely, Hunter lifted a chair and started to swing it at the transmitter. Instantly, Ann Samer turned to face him. The blaster clasped tightly in her hand. No, Max. But, Ann, those people outside are in desperate danger. I've gone this far. I won't turn back. In her voice was the familiar drive, the ambition he knew so well. But now it seemed different a twisted distortion of something he had once admired. "'We don't need Eric Young,' she said. "'He's bungled everything. You and I, Max,' she caressed the transmitter affectionately. "'With this, we'll possess unlimited power.' "'You mean, Anne?' he choked on the words. "'You came here of your own free will? You deliberately planned Mrs. Ames' murder?' She was dangerous, Max. She guessed too much. We knew that when we monitored the call you made from the spaceport. But in the beginning we weren't going to make you responsible. We thought the strangers in the house, your attempt to expose the other woman who called herself Mrs. Ames, would be enough to get you committed to a clinic. I didn't want you to be hurt, Max. Why, Anne? His voice was dead, emotionless because you loved me, or because you wanted me to be your ace in the hole if you failed to manage Eric Young the way you thought you could. That doesn't matter now, Max, dear. I thought Eric had what I needed, but I was misjudging you all along. You're still misjudging me, Anne. I'm going to smash this machine, and afterward— No, you aren't, Max, she said coldly. I'll kill you first. Calmly, she turned the dial on the blaster. He lifted the chair again, watching her face, still unable to accept what he knew was true. This was Anne Samer, the woman he had loved. It was the same Anne whose ambition had driven her from the general school to a first in psychiatry. With a fighting man's instinct, Hunter calculated his chances as he held the chair high above his head. It was Anne who had to die. He would accomplish nothing if he smashed her transmitter. She knew how to build another. If he threw the chair at her rather than the exerciser, and if he threw it hard enough. From the door, a fan of flame blazed out, gently touching Anne. She stood rigid in the first muscular tensions of paralysis. Hunter dropped her chair, shattering the transmitter. He turned and saw Dawn in the doorway. Somewhere deep in his subconscious mind, he had expected her. He was glad she was there. We've known for a long time we would have to break up their little partnership, Dawn explained. After I talked to you this morning, Captain, I persuaded the others to hold off for another day or so. A clinical experiment of my own. It was unkind of me, I suppose, to make you the guinea pig— but I wanted to watch your reactions while you fought your way to the truth. Now you know it all, more than you bargained for. And do you know what we're trying to do? Are you willing to join us? He looked at her. In your third alternative, the cautious, rational rebuilding? After men understand themselves, 
when we're able to answer one question. Why did you and Ann Samer, with identical backgrounds and intelligence and an identical socio-economic incentive, become such different personalities? What gives you a zero-zero adjustment index that nothing can shake? Not the psychiatric shock of war, Captain. Not physical pain alone or the treachery of the girl you love. We need you, Captain. We need to know what makes you tick. That we of yours, just what does that embrace? A cross-section of us all, she told him. Psychiatrists, executives in both cartels, union officials. We've been working at this for a good many years. We want to make our world over, yes. But this time, with reason and without violence, without sacrificing the good we already have. And you yourself, Don, who are you? I represent that non-entity called the government, Captain. A non-entity wouldn't make you what you are, Don. My name, Captain, she drew a long breath. My name is Don Farron. The rest of my family is dying out as the von Rausches are. A limited power has a way of poisoning the human mind. If wealth is our only ethical goal, what do we really have when we possess it all? Madness. Both cartels are shams, Captain Hunter, just as your frontier wars are shams. Yes, you may as well know that, too. Neither fleet has actually fought the other for a good many years. The planets you blast are hulks already long dead. It's all a sham, but we have to keep it alive. We have to make it seem real, until we're sure we've found something better and more workable for all of us. The tension in Ann Samer's muscles started to relax. Very slowly her body began to slump in the secondary stage of paralysis. What about her? Hunter asked. She can still make another exerciser. The dream of enslaving mankind is always insanity. We'll put her in a public clinic, of course. We may have to use her own machine once more to erase the memory of its structure from her mind. After that, the patent drawing will be destroyed. It's not a superficial cure for maladjustment that we're after, Captain Hunter, but the cause. All of Anne's research was up a blind alley, a brilliant waste. Suddenly Dawn screamed a warning and leveled her blaster at Eric Young. Hunter sprang back as Dawn fired, but her timing was a second too late. In the last blazing agony of life before death, Young had regained consciousness long enough to hurl the scalpel at Hunter's back. Ebbing strength distorted his aim. The blade plunged into Anne's heart as she slumped against the wall. After a long pause, Max Hunter moved toward Dawn and took her arm. He clenched his jaw tight and drew her quickly into the hall. I want out, Dawn. There's no healing here. I won't feel free again until I can look up at the stars. The stars? Then you're going back to the service, Captain. You're running away. He didn't answer her until they stood in Eric Young's garden. Sham battles for shadow cartels, he said. That's a child's subterfuge for the Tri-D space heroes. No, Don, the real war is here in the struggle for information about ourselves so that we can build a new world of freedom and human dignity. You say you'd need me, 
All right, Don. You've enrolled a recruit. It will be a long, slow war, Captain, she said, her eyes shining. We may never see a victory, and we can never make a truce. But at least we've learned how to go about solving the problem. After ten millennia of trial and error. End of section three. Recording by Scotty Smith. End of the Cartel's Jungle by Irving E. Cox, Jr.